Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Hope you join me uh, coming up with my conversation with Allison Hagee and her interesting novel, Boleto. First, a word about an opportunity for you in northern Utah if you like piano music. The Wasserman Festival is ongoing on the Utah State University campus. Some great pianists are uh, coming through Logan. And uh, tomorrow night at 7.30 at the USU Performance Hall, Sean Chen will give a solo piano recital. We have three tickets to that just for your call today. Just call 1-800-826-1495 and uh, tell us your name and phone number and we'll get you on the uh, will call list for tomorrow night's performance at the Wasserman Festival from Sean Chen. So if you're going to be in the Logan area, you love piano music, here is your chance. We have three tickets available. Uh, when you call, tell us how many tickets that you would like. And we'll get you on will call. Just uh, call 1-800-826-1495. Tell us your name and phone number and how many tickets you'd like. You could also email that information to us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Again, that's the Wasserman Festival, tomorrow night, Thursday night, 7.30 p.m., Sean Chen. Uh, piano recital, uh, USU Performance Hall, up to three tickets available for you for your call or your email today. By the way, since we are on tape today, uh, you uh, may think you uh, perhaps c- could not participate. You still can. We'll get your comment on on the subject today uh, by emailing or calling, um, and we'll get that on the breaks. Uh, Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Allison Hagee, author of several books. The latest is a novel, Boleto. It's the story of men and horses, the American West, and the dream of a ticket out. The hero, Will Testerman, is a young Wyoming horse trainer determined to make something of himself. Money is tied at the family ranch, where he's living again after a disastrous end to his job on a Texas show horse circuit. He sees his chance with a beautiful quarter horse, a filly that might earn him a reputation. And he spends his savings to buy her and devotes himself to her training. And this happens in the familiar barns and corrals of home, then on a guest ranch in the rugged mountains, and in the final trial in the glittering, treacherous polo fields of Southern California. With Boleto, Allison Hagee has written a novel about our intimate relationships with animals and money, set against the backdrop of a new West that's changing forever. Allison Hagee is professor of English at University of Wyoming. She has uh, set her stories in uh, several places, Virginia, Outer Banks of North Carolina, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, now in Wyoming. Allison Hagee, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here, Tom. Thank you. Appreciate you being with us. Um, I've been reading some uh, interviews uh, with you, and one on this very cold day stood out to, to me. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's cold in Wyoming. It's sure cold here. <laughs> it's about negative ten here, right? Yeah, now. it's about the same here. Um, and uh, somebody asked you how uh, living in the landscape of the West has changed your writing. And uh, you said that you uh, think thought it brought more clarity to your senses, and then you quoted your husband. I wonder if you'd uh, you remember that. Quote that for us. <laughs> I think that he said something like, well, uh, "When you live out here in the high, dry West for a long time, it sort of uh, sucks all the extra uh, juice out of you, um, <laughs> and sort of uh, winnows you down to your essences, or at least that's how he feels." And I have to agree. <laughs> is he from? Is he from Wyoming? Did he move there from somewhere else? He's a Michigan man. Okay. Um, yes, and he loves it out here, but I think he, one of the things he likes about it uh, is streams. Yeah. And you, you do write about, there's kind of a, a strain through your, through your books, you write about people um, who are living at the extremes. 
I do, and I, I, th- I think that that goes back to my roots in the mountains of uh, Appalachia in Virginia, Tom, to, to be honest. It's one of those things, you know, you, you aren't aware of things when you're growing up, and you shouldn't be. Uh, but the world I was in was, was pretty marginal uh, economically, uh, in terms of agriculture or any kind of good jobs. It was physically beautiful place, and still is. Uh, but people were scratching and clawing and had been really uh, forever. Um, and it turns out that that just has remained really, really interesting to me. It's a, it's a very American thing to try to go, you know, onto the frontier or the edge of some place and try to uh, make something new of it. Um, and I, it turns out I was growing up in the middle of that uh, in the mountains of Virginia, and it just continues to fascinate me why and how we do that and how we, how we handle failure when it comes. And, of course, not everyone lives at these extremes, not even the majority, but, but that is, as you say, a very American thing. No, I think, it, I think it's true, and I think our, our, you know, the demographic shift continues to be towards cities and the suburbs. But uh, as, I mean, the kind of American animal, the idea of leaving, you know, home, and this is, of course, for, for the white European uh, immigrants who came over uh, to, to, to go somewhere and start over, uh, even if it's not a particularly easy place to live, because there are things to be gained from that. I guess freedom and autonomy is, is part of the myth there. That that just seemed to to drive uh, the first couple of centuries of our country, and I think it's I think it's still in the family memory of of people who live in cities and suburbs now, or at least that's been my experience. You're right that uh, people who live on the American margins, that could be geographically, economically, culturally, mm-hmm. uh, intrigue you. And you go on to say, because perhaps because they're always in conflict with whatever, weather, economic success. Yeah, and I, you know, I guess any storyteller would tell you, uh, we got to have conflict, we're drawn toward it, and we're really interested, uh, every fiction writer is, in the choices people make. And I think that people who are out on the margins, whether they put themselves there or whether they've grown up there, um, are constantly facing pretty significant choices, you know, every day, every week, every year. Uh, for me, I didn't know it, but growing up around sort of, you know, basically hill farmers, people who were who were just doing sustainable farming, you know, a few dairy cattle, a few pigs, a few chickens, back in the 60s and 70s, um, were constantly just trying to find the balance to make enough money to feed themselves and pay off whatever bills they had. And then when I got older and traveled more, I, when I got to the coast, I saw fishermen and their families doing the same thing. When I moved to Michigan, you could see versions of that in uh, factory families, uh, but also out on the margins with, you know, uh, lumber mills and things like that. And then when you come to the American West, it's just writ large, um, because this is a hard place to live. I live in a city now that was never inhabited by humans 12 months of the year until the Union Pacific Railroad came through. Mm-hmm. The natives were, were very wise in, in the patterns of habitation they established, and they, they slipped off these mountains and plains for three or four months of the year because it was, it was too cold and too hard to live on. Uh, some people seek these places out. Uh, they do. <laughs> they do. And you're in Utah, and I'm in Wyoming, and I think that, that, that uh, that's a really interesting dynamic. You see less of that maybe in the Appalachia where I grew up, but um, yes, and people are constantly coming here to, to Wyoming and wanting to be, quote-unquote, away from it all. Um, and I think that's interesting to me. Uh, it's neither right or wrong, but it's interesting. 
what's even more interesting to me is what happens to those folks when they show up. Is it as they dreamed it would be, or is it harder in ways they didn't anticipate, or is it maybe even fulfilling in ways they didn't anticipate? And to me, I'm just endlessly fascinated uh, watching how people try to make it out in the Rocky Mountains. Your, uh, your book and your character, Will Testament, has been called an unsentimental portrait of the modern-day uh, cowboy. Did you set out purposely to skewer the, the, the myth, or, or is it just observing people? I, I, I did a little bit. I mean, really what I tried to do, Tom, was write about the kind of young people I think I see out here now in the twenty-first, early 21st century. So I, I, I wasn't intentionally skewering, but I was trying to hew close enough to the experience that I thought I was seeing um, that it might bring a little bit of a tone uh, shift to some readers. I mean, Will is, is honorable and hardworking um, and focused and decent in the way I think we would all hope that we would be and our children would be, but he still has a really hard time making it, even though he has a great skill set, because his skills are not 21st century skills. They're, uh, he's good with large animals. He's patient with people. He's probably not a city kid. He has a real gift with horses, but it's very hard to build a living with a gift like that when you're young. You have to build a clientele, and you usually need to have patrons, and that's very true in the horse business. And with patrons come the kinds of trade-offs that I think are really, really uncomfortable for independent young people. So... I think, you know, the cowboy on our movies is forever fascinating and will forever sort of have a place in our American heart. But I think we owe it to ourselves to take a, a new look at what it means to have a skill set um, that is not as uh, universally appreciated as it probably once was. Um, you know, it's it's a boutique business, the horse business is, I think. Yeah, and that's something I, I don't think we focus on much because the myth is so powerful, and we we tend to think of the West as, you know, filled with cowboys and, you know, ranchers and farmers. that The, the numbers are shrinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, to me, Utah, which is an amazing state, is a great example of that because you have a big, wonderful, you know, metropolitan area in the middle of your state. We don't quite have that, but... You know, the engines that drive success here in Wyoming are oil and gas, um, tourism, uh, and people coming to retire. And none of those are particularly smooth. None of those offer great opportunity to someone like Will Tusterman, who happens to have, who happens to be really good with large animals. You know, a hundred years ago, he would have been at the center of his community because everybody had to handle and treat their large animals. Uh, that's not the case for him now. So what's he going to do? And we'll talk a bit about that, of course. Uh, in fact, in his family, it, it's kind of a microcosm of a lot of families in the West. There, you know, maybe part of the family is involved in in agriculture, large animals. Will's father, I think, is in the printing business to support the farm, and that that's the way a lot of <laughs> a lot of farms are. You have to do something else to support the farm. That was the way it was when I was growing up eons ago in Virginia, and it's still true out here. And, and it, it strikes me when you meet ranch families, almost always someone in the family has uh, a public sector job that provides insurance, um, even if it's what I'd call a sort of great job, 
you know, great in all the other valuable ways, like teaching in the public schools, which is what Will's mother does. And you see these, you know, two and three part-time jobs just to get enough cash to uh, keep the operation going, just cover the variables, because um, there's just there's just not enough income from even a quote-unquote successful ranch to really support a, a family in any way. And you mentioned the you know, the factors that are economic factors that are driving the engine in uh, Wyoming, which would be similar all across the West. And some of those are in conflict, aren't they? Oil yeah. versus tourism, <laughs> yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things, I, 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 there's not as much of that in Boleto, but I have got my eyes fixed pretty closely on the um, shifting partnerships among uh, ranchers, uh, energy developers, uh, conservation interests, uh, and the, the federal and state government. Um, because, you know, Wyoming is prized for its great hunting, fishing, clean air, beautiful mountains. Um, can you sustain that uh, while you're drilling and fracking? Um, can you keep those small towns, uh, will they hang together if the, if the tax base dwindles or there are a lot of second homeowners who have a very different way of thinking about community than the people who live there all, all year round do? I mean, it's really interesting, but the pieces don't fit together very smoothly at all. And I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know if this happening in uh, anywhere in Wyoming, but I'm thinking of North Dakota. In some respects, we're back to the Wild West. Yes, yes, and we have we have versions of that here. Yeah, if you're talking about the the Bakken uh, boom, some of that spilled over to our northeast corner of Wyoming. Yeah, uh, crime, uh, drugs, prostitution, uh, different kinds of violence, and and we've had versions of that here uh, in and around Rock Springs in the 70s and 80s. Uh, huge boom uh, in the west central part of the state 10 years ago in Pinedale. Um, and when you look at the police reports from places like Casper or even Cheyenne, you see you see a kind of of pattern that <laughs> probably goes all the way back to when the railroad came through. Mm-hmm. Lots of itinerant uh, single men with money in their pockets or hope to have money in their pockets and the, the kind of dynamic uh, social upheaval that follows that. We're talking with Allison Hagee. She's a professor of English at uh, University of Wyoming, author of several books. The latest is a novel. It's called Boleto. And it's the story of Will Testerman, a young Wyoming horse trainer. He's determined to make something of himself. He has ambitions, and he sees his chance with a uh, beautiful quarter horse, a filly. that might earn him a reputation. And he spends his savings to buy her, devotes his time to her training. And uh, the novel is set in the rugged Wyoming mountains, uh, familiar barns and crowds of his home. And the final uh, area is near Anaheim, uh, polo fields of Southern California. We'll get to talking about all of that and how this represents uh, the West, people living at the extremes that we've been talking about. And I'll, I want to get uh, Allison Hagee talking about uh, more about her uh, growing up years in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of uh, Virginia and her father, the country doctor. She accompanied him on uh, on house calls. There's another tradition that's gone out of out of style, Allison Hagee. It sure has. And, I, and, and who knew at the time when I was riding in the back of that... Uh, Ford Galaxy that uh, that I was seeing the end of a kind of era. Uh, it was an odd education for all of us, I think, and I'm sure my father wasn't at all aware of, of that. He just wanted to have some time with us, but he was literally on call 
24-7 for the first 15 years of my life. Um, and it was a great way and a harrowing way to see how other people lived, um, to understand the roles of patience and compassion in the world, um, and to also just kind of see uh, a landscape in a really intricate way. You know, every back road, sometimes in, in, at night, sometimes in the daytime, um, and the way that my my father was welcomed into all kinds of homes, even of people who really would rather not be bothered, you know, who lived in isolation uh, by choice. We'll talk more about that after a brief break. More with Allison Hagee. The novel is Boleto, following the break. And here we are at a break. Tom Williams, uh, Access Utah, here on Utah Public Radio. Just want to give you an update on those uh, tickets to the Wasserman Festival. Two of those, two of the three are gone, so thanks for that call. Um, and one left. If you'd like to hear some great piano music tomorrow evening, 7.30, in the USU Performance Hall on the Utah State University campus, Sean Chen in solo piano recital uh, as a part of the Wasserman Festival then uh, you have that opportunity, one ticket left. Uh, all you have to do is call, give us your name and telephone number, and we'll have that ticket uh, for you at Will Call there tomorrow evening for some great piano music as part of the Wasserman Festival. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you could email us to upraxis@gmail.com. Just uh, call or email your name and phone number. And uh, we'll get you that ticket, or not get you the ticket, we'll have the uh, ticket there at Will Call for tomorrow evening. It's part of the Wasserman Festival ongoing uh, all this uh, coming week up through April 3rd, I think. Uh, Wasserman Festival on the Utah State University campus. Sean Chan, solo piano for recital, one ticket left at 1-800-826-1495. Utah Public Radio wants to know, who do you think you are? A radio version of the popular television series where you search for family connections. From beginning to end, we want to know why your family history matters, how you search for your roots, and what you have learned from your family tree. Senator I R Senator? He was a senator? Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's Sarah Pownall. Wow. Charlemagne. Are you kidding me? Share your stories with us by going to upr.org and clicking the Become a Source link. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science. This Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center, presenting CSI Chemistry, I Know Where You've Been and What You Ate with chemist biologist Leslie Cheslin. Information at usu.edu unwrapped. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Allison Hagee, uh, who is author of uh, several books, uh, including three novels, Keenland, Snow, Ashes, and now Boleto, which is now out in paperback. Uh, she is a professor of English at the University of Wyoming. She was raised on a farm in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, author of uh, collections of short fiction as well. And we're talking about Boleto and some of her history on the program today. Boleto, by the way, is the story of a young uh, cowboy, Will Testerman, young Wyoming horse trainer. He has ambitions, and he sees his ticket. By the way, Boleto is uh, Spanish for ticket, so that there's a connection, uh, with a beautiful quarter horse. 
a uh, filly that might earn him a reputation, and uh, that's what he names the quarter horse. We'll get it into more of the uh, plot of the book. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, Alison Hagee's growing up years in rural Virginia, where her uh, father was a country doctor and made house calls. He would uh, take young Allison with him. Um, and uh, I wonder if you tell us a little bit more about this. You, you're quoted as saying that you saw people, families, on the edge of grief in, in many instances, as I guess you would with, with uh, traveling with a doctor. You know, I, yes, I did. Um, so, you know, really going, my dad would go often to attend uh, deathbeds. You know, a lot of people back in those days uh, never went to hospitals and never wanted to. That that felt very wrong to them. So he would be called in um, to try to provide care, and sometimes it was palliative care. And so often here we would roll up, and and it, it would really be, you know, grandmas or, or the great uncle or the ailing parents' last hours. And, of course, we waited outside because that's what we should have done. But... But you could just see and smell the kind of loss um, that people were suffering just by being near those homes. Um, I think the thing that struck me the most about it, Tom, was the, was the dignity. Um, there wasn't really fear, and these were people who usually were, um, had faith, their own brand of faith. That said, um, when someone passed away, because these are usually large families, but there was a lot of balance in what everybody did, it was, it was very hard. It's always hard. Hmm. You say that you're, you're intrigued by survivors, and you go on to say by people who work on the land or water where their livelihoods are affected by natural forces far beyond their control. And that, that would apply to, I guess, many of the things you've, you've written about outer banks of uh, North Carolina, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, now out in Wyoming. Yes, yeah, and I think so, weather and geography. And, and one of the things that... Um, that I spend some time thinking about is no matter how modern or postmodern we might be coming as a, a culture in America, there's some things that we really can't change. We can't change the vagaries of uh, geography, uh, and we really don't have any control over the weather. And, and curiously enough, that's become a kind of dominant hot topic right now. I mean, something like the Superstorm Sandy reminds us of just how small we are despite all our so-called advances and if you're a if you're a fisherman uh on the coast of north carolina or you're someone who's tried to run cattle on the northern american plains that's always been an issue you've always known that you were rolling the dice but you weren't the one in charge you couldn't there's certain things you couldn't make happen and i think that that's that's pretty humbling, and it's very humbling to Americans because we sure do like to think that we can fix everything. Mm, yeah, that's true, isn't it? I was reading an article the other day it, it, thinking about this issue writ large. Um, with climate change, we're hearing more and more about uh, Pacific Island nations. Mm-hmm. I was reading about the island of Kiribati, which potentially is facing the end of its, you know, it's, it, it could be underwater in 30, 60 years. And uh, there's there's a sense there must be a sense of helplessness there, as you say that runs in conflict with what we usually think in America. Yeah, I think it's I think it's true, and I am so struck by uh, the optimism of people who have moved to Wyoming since I've been here. You know, meet them sometimes, and they set up a little small ranchette, or they uh, they come to try to get away from it all in some other ways, and it's it's a really powerful and admirable feeling, but there's also a sinking sense in my stomach, and I think, 
boy, are they really ready? Am I really ready? You know, for these, for the harshness uh, of the winters, but also the the unexpected nature of even our so-called good seasons. I mean, what, I've been out here 17 years, and I think nine of those years have uh, been considered drought years. Mm. You know, so what's normal? What's sustainable? What's right? Is always in play out here. Um, and I have to say, I grew up in a part of Virginia, even with the economic deprivation, we always had plenty of grass, plenty of water. You could grow enough food to sustain your family always. And that is not true out here. Um, not in the same way. Yeah, that's, it's very interesting to see people who make that choice. What do you think they're looking for? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Sometimes I think it's just a sense of the natural world. I mean, to be honest, I the skies are beautiful. The land is intriguing. There are a lot, you know, the uh, wildlife is, is alive and moving through the world out here in ways that I think is really compelling. I think sometimes folks just want to get away from the hustle and bustle and the noise of metropolitan areas. Um, and I get that, too. I, I put myself in that, uh, in that category. Um, but I'm not sure that we're always prepared to give up. Uh, a lot of the the comforts or the expectations that we've we bring with us from other places, um, and I wonder if that dynamic is, was kind of the same for our forebears out here. I mean, if you were the younger son of a Swedish or Norwegian family and you you showed up out here on the high plains, did did you also bring some of those same expectations that that would be dashed by the reality? Uh, and then did you just reform those expectations so you could last? I think that's probably true, but but I don't know for sure. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I wonder, you've written and in, in set your books and novels in, in several different places. I know there's a question you get a lot. I'm going to pose it to you. I, I think I know the answer, but um, you're, you're described as a Western writer now. <laughs> I am now. Um, and before that, I was considered a Southern writer. Uh, my take on this, uh, and I borrow this from my former teacher, the uh, fiction writer Richard Ford, who is a real titan uh, of the novel. Uh, I think of myself as an American writer. I have the deepest respect for the differences among regions, and I do think they still exist. Um, but I feel like, for me at least, um, though I am completely drawn to landscape and completely drawn to the the accents and the food and the traditions of American regions, that what's really interesting to me is how all those things are, many of those things are ultimately American. Hmm. What, what are some of those differences? Could you delineate a few uh, coming from uh, Virginia from to the Wyoming? South and the West, yeah, which yeah. are the things I know the best. In the mm-hmm. Midwest, too, I lived there for a long time. Um, the South I grew up in, and this will date me, but I suppose it's important, was still very much tinged by um, the heritage of the Civil War and slavery. Even though it was 100 years later, that, that, that dynamic still seemed very much alive to me in the way we talked about history, what we celebrated. But, we, but the South I grew up in also felt like it was... Um, the underdog, the unwanted uh, little child in America that we were, um, had
done great wrong in the past, and we're still paying the price for it, and we're not taken seriously. And that's changed. I mean, the economic boom of the 80s and 90s changed so much of the South that I grew up in, but, but that was still very true. They're also just the ethnic heritage of the areas are so different. You know, the Scotch-Irish tradition in which I grew up in, the white tradition, was very much an oral storytelling, not very interested in formal education, lots of music, um, uh, and a real clannish attitude. And when I moved out to the West, I didn't find the same kind of clannishness. Um, And people out here were and are much more literate, um, they have a very different way of thinking about uh, American history uh, because the, the great sin, if I may use that word, out here is the extermination of the Native American population, more or less, and the Western settlement patterns. And, and that, was, that was so far in the past of the South I grew up in that it, that it didn't even bear mention, really. Uh, People out here in the American West also, almost everyone has some story of remaking him or herself, which is, you know, the foundation myth of the American West, but it's still very true. Whereas in the South, the South I grew up in, people didn't move to the South to remake themselves or to recast themselves. They tried to get out of the South, away from their big extended families. So I think out here... um, you still have people coming and looking for a kind of, well, not kind of, a, looking for a very romanticized America uh, in a way that wouldn't have been true of the South. And the Midwest is so comfortable in all these good ways. It, it industrialized itself. It figured out how to uh, have its communities cohere. It did a lot of really smart things in terms of racial and ethnic relationships, also some not-so-smart things. But um, there's a kind of quiet, robust confidence to the Midwest that I think is still uh, very prevalent. And it's so prevalent that it's a region that doesn't think of itself as really having a regional identity. It thinks of itself as kind of America. Mm. We're talking with Alison Hagee, who just joined us. Uh, she's a novelist most recently. Uh, her novel is Boleto, and uh, it is set in uh, Wyoming. Also, interestingly, in uh, near Anaheim, California. We're talking about that as well. Uh, and the hero is Will Testerman, a young Wyoming horse trainer. He's determined to make something of himself. He has ambitions, and he sees his ticket out, if you will, in a horse he names uh, ticket in Spanish, Boleto, uh, beautiful uh, filly. And uh, he's he's the end goal is to uh, to take her, uh, I think to to sell for the polo grounds in uh, in Southern California. Alison, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, Will Testerman. Very interesting character. You say a lot of people come to the West to remake themselves. He's he's born and raised in the West, but he's he has this ambition. hasn't been able. He's been knocking around, but he sees in this horse, this beautiful horse, Boleto, uh, essentially a, a way to achieve his ambitions. He does, and you know he really is trying to remake himself. You know he he's not going to be able to stick on the family ranch. He has two brothers. Uh, he's made a couple of stabs at living away from home. He's driven vans for race horses and performance horses in California, which is pretty far down on the food chain, and that didn't last too long. Came back and tried a little college, and then went down to Texas, which is where I have to say a lot of 
Wyoming horse people go to see if they can uh, make their fortunes. Um, and he ends up working for a family that's very much into the high-end saddlebred horses. Um, and he's pretty good at it, but he runs afoul of um, the owner's daughter. And <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say that I saw that happen once, though not out here. Um, it was in Virginia, and so he loses his job. Um, and I think, you know, sort of goes back to Wyoming to try to figure out what's going to be next. Um, and again, he doesn't want to do just what everybody's going to do. He could kind of patch something together on the rodeo circuit and helping other people. But he's gotten this idea that he can take his skills if he finds just the right horse and he can sell her to uh, uh, somebody who's interested in polo and make more money than he's ever made before. And he wants to do it partly, Tom, because none of his buddies have ever tried to make it that way. So Will is Will is willing to take a kind of risk that not every young person is. He's willing to fall on his face in order to do something different. Puts his life savings into this, right? He does. He does yeah. what little he has. Yeah. Um, and he's been looking for this filly for a while. And truth be told, that part of Will Testerman is, is based on a young wrangler I met who was from the Cody, Wyoming area who uh, had spent probably up to four years looking for just the right quarter horse filly, just the right breeding and um, size and athleticism um, to see if he could also uh, train her and and make some real money. And I was intrigued at, at how and why a, a young person of his skill would take a risk like that and why he thought he could... Uh, you know, swim with the sharks of the the big money polo people. But he did, um, and I was sure there was a story in that kind of urge. So mm-hmm. I tried to write one. Not not all of us would would take that risk. I don't think so. I think that often, you know, we're pretty cautious about our abilities, and we don't want to fail, and we definitely don't want to risk losing our life savings. Um, but in Will's case, he's just so sure. Um, that he can find the right horse and get her to the right people at the right time, um, that he's pretty unwavering. The one wild card for him is his mother. As long as he thinks that her recovery from breast cancer is going well, he feels really good about being far away from home and out in the world. But he does, in the back of his mind, he's always worried about her. There's an intriguing question. It's at the center of the book. A couple of questions his mother asks him. Who are you today, Will Testerman? What will you be today? Yeah, you know, that just came to me. It's one of those things as a writer. um, I was very fortunate with this book. I was sitting in a lecture thinking about something else, and the first few pages of it just sort of came to me as a bolt of lightning. And that question was within that bolt. I didn't even know much about... um, Will's mother, I knew she was a school teacher, but as I was scratching out those first few pages, those questions came to me. And and they were they were spoken by her, but I knew that there was something bigger behind them, Tom. And it, and that happens with me in writing. I just I have to write it down and then I have to figure out why that came the way it did and what it means. Um but to me, that's a real mantra for Will. It's a real test. You know, who are you? Are you being true to your nature? Are you doing things for the right reasons at the right time? And he has a value system. He sticks to it throughout the novel, although it really costs him. 
And there's a conflict, isn't there? He's He has his ambitions, financial ambitions. He's got the love of this horse, though. Well. Yes, yes. And I think this is one of the things, this is a space that I feel like we find ourselves in often when we're young, or at least I did. Um, he, he understands that success in that world uh, is about money, and he is really sure that he can make the trade in the way he wants, and it won't cost him emotionally, but he is underestimated um, that he'll develop to the, to the grooms and trainers he works with, but also the deep emotional attachment um, that he's built uh, with this filly. Hmm. We're talking with Allison Hagee. The book is Boleto. It's her uh, novel. It's set in Wyoming and uh, Texas and uh, also in uh, California. And we're going to take a brief break when we come back more with Allison Hagee, who's professor of English at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And we'll have uh, Allison Hagee read uh, a passage or two from her book. We'll get to talking about, hopefully, about the, the polo grounds in Southern California. This is a world that uh, I had been totally unaware of. Uh, more following the break. And at break, just an update on the Wasserman Festival tickets. They're all gone, so thanks for your interest. Uh, thanks for calling. Uh, and if you're interested and you know, want to pay for tickets, uh, the next two events, or four events, I should say, with the Wasserman Festival in Logan on the campus of Utah State University in the USU Performance Hall. Uh, coming up tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, Vadim Kolodenko will give a master class. And then, as we've been mentioning, tomorrow evening at 7.30 p.m., Sean Chen in recital. Then they'll reverse that process on Friday. 10.30 in the morning, Sean Chen, a master class. And 7.30 in the evening on Friday, Vadim Kolodenko um, with a recital. And uh, then the Wasserman Festival wraps up with their uh, keynote guest on uh, April 2nd and 3rd. That's Stephen Huff coming in. All of the information at uh, usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal date, and millet breads. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Allison Hagee, professor of English at University of Wyoming in Laramie. Uh, she has written several books, including Keenland and Snow Ashes. The latest novel is called Boleto, the story of Will Testerman, a young Wyoming horse trainer. He has ambitions. Money is tied on the family ranch, and he's had a disastrous end to his job in uh, the Texas show horse circuit. He sees his chance, his ticket, as it were, with a beautiful quarter horse, a filly that might earn him a reputation. And the plan is to uh, train her and uh, take her to the polo fields of Southern California. Uh, Boleto is the Spanish word for a ticket, and that's what he names the horse. It's the name of the novel, Boleto. Alison Hagee, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about this craft. You see it as a craft, don't you? You describe this, this industry and horses as it's become a boutique industry, kind of a niche um, of course, it's freighted with uh, all sorts of myth. Uh, but uh, what if you t- tell us about this? Could could you describe, or is this just too facile? Um, Will Testament as a, as a horse whisper? No, I think that's true. The, the phrase wouldn't have been one that I grew up with, but I do remember being struck uh, by how certain people um, around horses when I was a kid just seemed to have this very quiet. Uh, powerful way. They were just so comfortable. They could move among the animals as if they were, were part of the herd themselves. And now, in the wake of um, the Horse Whisperer move, 
movie, but also uh, Monty Robbins and some other trainers, we understand um, how that works a little bit more uh, directly. But no, he has he has a gift, and I think that there are among us people who do have gifts with animals, large and small, and those were people who would have been central to their communities way back. And you, they and they still and they still have this. So he he is uh, a craft person in a really uh, kind of timeless way. The question is, how do you, how do you find a place where you can uh, perform your craft? Um, if you live in a small town in Wyoming, where maybe uh, it's it's not going to sustain you. Uh, I guess there's perhaps a dwindling number of places you could perform your craft. One that I hadn't thought of, uh, yeah, I, I don't connect polo with. I don't. I just don't collect polo with the, with at least the American West, the interior West. No, I think well, and there are a couple of outposts here uh, uh, up in Sheridan and in Jackson, but particularly in Sheridan, they've been doing polo since the since the Scottish and uh, English lords came out here long before. Um, statehood, you know, in the 1880s and 90s. So oddly enough, there are little outposts here, um, but you most often see it in the warm weather uh, edges of America, uh, Miami and Southern California, because the sport is super popular in uh, Mexico and South America among the moneyed classes. Um, that said, the animals themselves are tremendous athletes. They really have to be uh, remarkable, not fast, but quick, and they also need to have a kind of um, competitive nature that that the Arabs recognize in their own horses. They have to be able to, you know, kind of want to battle one another. Um, so it's pretty interesting, but it's definitely not a Northern American phenomenon. Mm. And so th- this is there's there's money there, right? right? There's that's, that's real why money I've... among the yeah <laughs> among. Uh, the people who really care about horse flesh, and a, a great deal of it uh, is uh, European or uh, South and Central American money. Um, you can, y- y- you got to find the right horse. They have to be the right size and with the right temperament. But they are still uh, worth a great deal, uh, and you can and you can bring them to fruition. Um, it takes longer. To, to get a polo pony started. So you have to figure out how to time that investment in a way that the payoff will work for you. And that's one of the things that Will is trying to figure out. Because you can, in some of the other areas where there's big money, roping and reining, um, the clients uh, have different demands, and you, you might be able to make your money staged in a different way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But with polo, they have to be four or five years old before you really know whether they're going to do it. Um, and that's a long time to wait to make money. So Will goes out and tries to hurry things up, and that's one of the things that gets him in trouble a little mm-hmm. bit. I wonder if you'd uh, read us a passage from the, from the book. Sure. I was just going to read the start, if that's okay, Tom, yeah, although I have some other areas too. But this is just the way the novel begins. This really just came to me one day, um, as I said, while I was sitting in a lecture hall, which just lets you know that you can't plan novels. You just have to let them come as they wish, I think. So this is the start of Boletto. She was a gift, though he did not think of her that way for a long time. He paid $1,200 for her, money that came straight from his single account at Cabin Valley Bank. 
She was halter broke and trailer broke, and she'd been wormed for the spring. Someone had taken a rasp to her feet. He'd seen her damn Sally Quick Ticket win more than one prize in cutting horse competitions. He had no knowledge of her sire. The man who bred her kept good horses at his ranch outside of Cody on the south fork of the Shoshone River. The man did not use his horses much, but he had an experienced manager, someone who knew how to care for foals and weanlings. When the man chose to sell some of his animals, the manager, a careful fellow by the name of Campion, asked around. Campion did not go in for the commotion of stock sales. He had four horses he needed to sell, and the prettiest one was a quarter-horse filly that was barely two years old. She was nicely balanced. There was a decent chance she had inherited her mother's speed. Was it true what he'd heard, Campion asked on the telephone? Was he still in the market? He knew $1,200 was a bargain for a strong-legged filly with papers. He knew that before he even saw her. His name was William Testerman, and he was 23 years old. There were days he felt older and days he felt as lost as a blind pup. His parents had raised him in a way that allowed him to take account of the weaknesses he might find within himself. His older brothers, Everett and Chad, had managed to cover the bases on the family ranch. It was a small place, just 90 deeded acres set along one side of Little Kettle Creek. The town of Lost Cabin, Wyoming, had grown right up to the edge of the ranch, and the town was growing still. It was his father's joke to refer to his hay meadows and corrals as a lost cabin municipal golf course. Town is eating its way right past us, his father said. When I was a kid, you couldn't pay people to live in this part of the state. Too cold, too much isolation. Now everybody in America thinks they're in love with fresh air and loneliness. Very good. That's uh, Alison Hagee reading from her novel, Boleto. Yeah, that sets the scene very well. And I was thinking that the, the name of the town, you, you <laughs> might think that's a little too cute, but it, you, you travel through Wyoming or anywhere in the West, you've, you've, you've got towns, you know, named this. There is like a this. real lost cabin. Oh, there's I a real lost a cabin, bit. okay. Um, but there was an old mining site with an old, I think it's an old silver mine. And I just thought, uh, my goodness, that's too good a name to pass up. I'm just going to uh, make it a little bigger place. Uh, but you're right. I don't think people were being cute when they came up with all these interesting <laughs> yeah. Western names like, you know, uh, Dead End or was also a Lost Soldier or Spotted Horse. You know, there, there are reasons for most of these places. Well, um, and in my case, I, I think I wanted to evoke that sort of uh, kind of place where people would go to be left alone in their lives. Yeah. I'm thinking about Lone Pine, Burnt yes. Fork. These are real Wyoming towns. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about horses and horse people. You're, you're, you uh, dedicate, at least in part, uh, the, the novel to your dad, uh, who you say I loved do. his horses. I do. You know, one of the things that I didn't really think about, Tom, uh, and it's astonishing to me until I got into this project, was that uh, I knew my grandfather, of course, and he was a blacksmith. Um, by the time I was a little kid, he was no longer being a blacksmith, although all of his tools were around. But it, it should have occurred to me that, that I was the granddaughter of a blacksmith, and he'd been the son of a blacksmith, and he had been a son of a blacksmith, so that the men on the Hagee side of my family, up until my dad, had been handling horses their entire lives. So there must have been something going on there. But handling them in a really sort of, um, you know, uh, I mean, they, they were they were 
you know, pulling wagons and plows. So it was, it was like fixing cars or tractors to work with horses in those days. And then as a kid, um, my dad got us a couple of ponies, and I just loved those animals. And I learned to ride, but then I kind of wanted to do the, the pageantry part of it. And that was a real shock to me and to us. The, as beautiful as it was and is, uh, the, the, you know, the saddles and the jackets and the show rings and the big trailers and all that stuff, it was like walking into a completely different um, society, one that was very much driven by money, uh, who had it and how much they had. Mm. So that it's money driven, at least in the yeah, and it was pretty too. clear to me, and, and I was sort of okay with this, but um, it was pretty clear to me as soon as we started taking our horses and ponies outside of the confines of the county I grew up in. That if you were gonna, if you went to a show, the the results were almost predetermined. It's sort of like dog shows, I guess, um, because you could always buy a prettier pony or a pony that could jump better if you had the money. And if you could afford the training, and so for kids like us, there was only so far we could go um, because we weren't going to have the resources to go further. It was a very tiered society. Um, that said, the thing that held everybody together mostly was still their deep love of these animals. So there, there were so many contradictions, and I see that all the time. And whether you, you know, you go to a rodeo or a saddlebred uh, kind of event or a show jumping event or the Olympics or you just go to any kind of training facility, you find that the people who are truly drawn to the animals in a deeply passionate way, mingling and trying to figure out how to get along with the people who are in the business for uh, the money, power, political um, dynamics. And that, that's never changed. It's probably been that way <laughs> forever uh, with humans and horses, but uh, it makes for... Uh, I think, great stories because there are so many contradictions. We just have about a minute left. I wonder what you're uh, up to next. <laughs> I'm working on something that's very different from Boletto. Thank you for asking. It's set back in uh, Virginia. Uh, the main character is a woman. Um, some of the questions are still the same, though. I'm, I guess I'm really trying to figure out how people who love pastoral life, who want to be out uh, doing the, the farming thing or the ranching thing um, can find their way forward. Um, and maybe I'm just going to stay in that territory for a long time, Tom. But Well, it's a, it's a rich vein. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I just cannot... Uh, I haven't been able to answer my own questions very well yet, mm. but I have to say, writing about Will was a great pleasure because he's the kind of character that a writer can just love to be with day in and day out, and that was a real real joy for me. Allison Hagee talking about her latest novel. It's out in paperback now, Boletto. And uh, you can find it at uh, the usual places. We'll look for that uh, new book uh, to come out as well. Allison Hagee is professor of English at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. A real pleasure for me, too. And for producers uh, Bennett Purser and uh, Katie Swain, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening to Access Utah today. Commentator Thad Box. On a warm January day in South Texas, I searched for a metal stake I had driven as a graduate student 58 years earlier. 
A mama cow grazed peacefully, her head almost hidden by lush grass. Nearby, a white-tailed buck browsed in a wee-satch tree, his trophy antlers flashing in the sun. Both looked me over when I got out of my car, decided I was not the enemy, and proceeded to choose from the smorgasbord of plants on offer. Suddenly, both jerked to attention, looking toward an oil well off to her left. A lone coyote moved slowly in the tall grass, then pounced on a rodent. The cow and the deer returned to selecting the plants they liked most. A flock of geese flew overhead. An oil company truck drove slowly along a buried pipeline. Because of the wisdom and foresight of Rob Welder, the area is a living example that wildlife can thrive in areas where agriculture and oil companies succeed. He gave 7,800 acres of his ancestral ranch, complete with oil wells, to form the Rob and Bessie Welder Wildlife Foundation in 1954. The land was to continue as an operating ranch, but it would support research. Since then, the funds have supported graduate students at major universities who did research on basic and applied biology, economics, and agriculture. I was the first graduate student at the Welder. Much of my professional life has been trying to get agricultural producers and environmentalists on the same page. Most often, they each want the same thing. They want a functioning, sustainable land system where their grandchildren can enjoy something or activity they are afraid they will lose. But they concentrate on the thing and speak in different tongues about beliefs rather than facts. Government-funded research Universities and public land agencies try to bridge the gap between the competing groups, but their funding usually comes as grants to study specific problems of the day. There are many operating farms and ranches that demonstrate sustainable systems, but the science behind them is seldom documented. Every agricultural ecological region needs an independently funded organization dedicated to making land sustainable. The institution Rob Welder created is an excellent example of how one man could use part of his fortune to bring groups with different opinions about how land should be used together to make the world better. This is Thad Box. And we hope you join us for Access Utah tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the vegan lifestyle. Seems to be growing in popularity. We'll have two Utah State University students, one who recently tried vegan lifestyle, the other who has gone vegan. We'll talk with the author of a cookbook uh, called Vegan for Fit as well. And we hope to hear from you, your experiences as well. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. Uh, Hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.